Congregation, it is my great honor and privilege to be here with you this morning in God's house to worship the Lord together on this first Lord's Day of a new year. And it is my honor to, my privilege to lift up God's name this morning in my prayer that together we can all truly worship the Lord. And on this first day of a new year, it is my wish for all of you that the Lord truly blesses each one of you this year. And it's our custom often at the start of a new year to look forward at what might come. It's a custom on the on old years, the New Year's Day, or New Year's Eve rather, to look backward, to think about what's, what's gone behind. And our custom on a day like this to, to plan, to, to anticipate the future. And in this day and age, it's very common, isn't it, for us to talk about New Year's resolutions and plans for the future. And most of the time when people talk about these things, they're planning, they're planning a way in which they might improve themselves. They talk about resolutions for various purposes and, and the idea usually is somehow that they're going to make themselves better in the coming year. That what they do is somehow going to improve their life. And none of that really is grounded in God's word when you set, step back and think about it. It's good to take responsibility for our actions. And we need to be responsible and to indeed make plans for the future to the best of our ability. But whatever we do that's not done in faith is something that doesn't please the Lord. The Lord says that everything we do needs to be done in faith. And so as I was thinking about plans for the new year and our wish for the new year, it would be my, my wish, my sincere prayer for each one that we would know what it's like in this new year to really live by faith. Because a life by faith is a very different life than one in which we do things ourselves. A life of faith is really a life of submission to God's will. And it's a life living out of the strength of God and not in our own strength. And sometimes the life of faith seems like it might be a difficult life to live because faith isn't always strong, is it? Sometimes our faith is weak. Sometimes we suffer and struggle with doubts and fears. We may not trust God like we should, but nonetheless, the life of faith is really the only life that's truly blessed. And it's the only life in which you can truly find joy and peace. And this morning, we hope to consider Psalm 73 together. And the author of the psalm, Asaph, is someone who is struggling to live a life of faith. He's someone who, in fact, it was we see at the beginning of the psalm, who had begun to doubt and begun to fear. He says, my, my steps had well nigh slipped. And Asaph is really struggling with something very basic, very fundamental. And it's a struggle to live by faith and not by sight. Because Asaph looks around him, as we'll see as we go through the psalm, and he sees the wicked prospering. He sees the evil people in this world doing well somehow. And he sees the godly suffering. 
And that causes Asaph to really struggle. And if I'm not mistaken, it's a struggle that at least some people here know. It's a struggle all over this world today. When people look at the Bible, they look at God's Word, and they say, how is it if God is true, His Word is true, that these righteous people, these people that know Him, whom God says are blessed, are suffering in this world? And those who are completely godless, who are wicked, seem to be prospering. And so that's something we'll, we'll consider as we go through this psalm. But the theme is really going to be living by faith and not by sight. Because that's what we're called to do. To live by faith and not by sight. And so we'll have three main points as we go through the psalm. A grievous fall a gracious restoration, and a glorious future. And we'll examine these points and this theme really through verses 22, 23, and 24, which I'll read again now. In verse 22, we read, So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. That's Asaph describing his grievous fall, the first point. In verse 23, we read, Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. That's his gracious restoration. And then in verse 24, we read, Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. And that's going to be the third point, his glorious future. So living by faith and not by sight. A grievous fall, a gracious restoration, and a glorious future. And we'll start with the first point, a grievous fall. And you can see that again in verse 22. Asaph is describing really what comes before in the psalm. Verse 22 is really a description of the first portion of the psalm. He says, So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. And you might think, what has Asaph done to call himself that? What grievous sin has he committed to say, I was foolish. I was so ignorant I was as a beast before thee, O Lord. You might think initially, has he committed murder? Has he committed adultery? Or done some other horrible sin that would make him call himself a beast before God? But the reality is that Asaph was struggling with unbelief. And by the time he gets to verse 22, he is confessing that he was guilty of unbelief. Unbelief, that one of the greatest of sins God has revealed himself, children, in his word. And his word contains really everything we need to know to live and to die. And in his word, God has revealed who he is. And he has revealed truths about himself and about us. And he calls us to believe it. He calls us to believe it. Really, he's calling us to believe in him then, isn't he? If this is his word, and in it he's revealed himself to us, he's calling us to believe his word, and he's calling us to believe in him. And when we don't believe God's word, we are really saying that God is lying, that God is a liar. I know that sounds like a harsh way of putting it, but when we doubt what's in God's word, when we say, I can't bring myself to believe what he has said here, we're saying that God isn't true. And that is why Asaph is calling himself a beast here. 
He doubted God because he began to believe what he could see with his eyes more than what he read in God's word. He believed what he could understand with his mind. He tried to make sense when he looked around at the world. He tried to make sense of what he saw and the reasoning he used and the conclusions he came to. He decided he was going to believe that more than what he read in God's word. Even though what he saw when he looked around contradicted God's word. And that's living by sight, isn't it? That's what we mean. I know that's maybe a hard concept to understand, children. Living by sight and living by faith. But that's very simply what it means. To live by sight is to believe what you see with your eyes and what you can understand with your mind when you look around. To live by faith is to trust God's word completely. It's to trust God's word even when it contradicts what you see with your eyes and what you can understand with your mind. It's to say, even if I can't make sense of what I see, I'm going to trust God's word. That's living by faith. And that's a really fundamental difference. There's few more dangerous conditions to be in than living by sight. And why? Why is that? God's given us our eyes. He's given us our minds. He's given us the ability to reason. And we can look around and use these gifts that God has given to observe the world and the things that happen in it and to try to make sense of it. So why is it so dangerous to live based on what we can see? And I hope, children especially, you immediately can answer that the danger exists because of the fall. We're no longer perfect. Our faculties, our bodies, our minds, everything within us has fallen into sin and has become corrupted when we sinned. And so our ability to understand what we see around us is now limited. Our ability to make perfect sense of it and to see how it's all from God and relates to God is corrupted. We can't do it perfectly anymore. We've sinned. And Paul, Paul warns us of this quite clearly in Ephesians 4. He says, this I say. He's warning the Ephesian church. This is the church he's talking to, God's people. He's saying, this I say. Walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. He's warning God's church, God's own people, not to live like the Gentiles live because he knows that there is ignorance within us. Our understanding is darkened. By nature, we don't have a perfect understanding of God's word. In fact, by nature, we don't have faith at all. By nature, we do live according to what we can see. And that's a very dangerous place to be. And I want to pause here for just a moment, especially for the children, and try to help you understand why this is so so important. And I I can't think of a better way to do it other than to tell you a parable that Jesus told. Do you remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? In that parable, there was a very rich man. This man, the Bible says, he fared sumptuously. That means he feasted on a lot of food. He had great feasts every day. He wore fine clothing. He had a huge house. And he lived a life that if you just looked at him, 
you would say, this man is blessed. This man has everything. And then there's another person in the story. His name was Lazarus. And Lazarus was a beggar who lived outside of the gate of this rich man. Lazarus was covered in sores. Lazarus didn't have food. He begged for food from this rich man. And he, he was so poor and so unable to do anything that even the dogs came. The dogs came and licked his sores. That was really the only comfort he had. I don't know if you've ever seen a person like that. I did once when I was in Egypt. There was a man who lived right outside of the apartments I stayed at. And he laid on a couch and he was covered in sores. And he sat there day after day just begging for money or food. He almost never got up. When you see a person like that, you don't think they're blessed. You don't look at a person like that and say, this man is blessed. But in the parable of the rich Lazarus, Jesus tells us that Lazarus was a, was a blessed man. He was one of God's children. And the rich man, on the other hand, was not. He was a wicked person. And if the story stopped there, it would be hard to understand, wouldn't it? You would, he would, you would have the same struggle that Asaph had. You look at this situation and you say, how can this be? How come the wicked are prospering and the righteous are suffering? But then Jesus lifts the veil, as it were, between us and eternity. And he tells us what comes next. He says, after these men died, the rich man went to hell. And he was so tormented in hell that he begged for just somebody to dip their finger in water and put it on their tongue. And Lazarus was carried to glory, to heaven. And in heaven, all his tears were wiped away and he rested with God's saints in Abraham's bosom is what we read. And Abraham is obviously in heaven with the Lord. So that's why it's so important to live by faith, children, and so dangerous to live by sight. It won't end well. And as we see, there's more benefits to living by faith, even now, even on this earth. But I just wanted to make that clear for you children as we go on. I know this is a hard topic, but I hope you can understand that and keep that, that story in your mind, that distinction between living by sight and not by faith, and why it's so dangerous to live by sight. And this is where Asaph finds himself in our psalm. If you look at the psalm, what did Asaph see? He saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he saw, it in, he saw it in a couple of different ways. He saw it financially. Look at verse 3 of our psalm. I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Or in verse 7, their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. Or verse 10, waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. Or verse 12, behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. And not only did, were they prospering financially, but also as far as their health goes, they were even prospering. If you look at verse 4, there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. Another way to translate that verse is there are no pains until their death. They're strong. Their strength is firm. They're not sick. In verse 5, they are not in trouble as other men are. Neither are they plagued like other men. So not only are they prospering financially, they're prospering even in their strength and their day-to-day lives. And on top of all that, they're arrogant about it. Verse 6, pride compasseth them about as a chain. They speak loftily, verse 8. And in verse 11, they say, how does God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? They're arrogant about the fact that they're blessed and they're sinning. 
They know they're wicked. And they say, how does God know? Look at us. We live well. You hear that today in the world, don't you? You'll hear rich people say that. You'll hear wicked people say it. If God was real, this couldn't be like this. And Asaph saw this, and it troubled him. But what made it worse for Asaph was that that wasn't all he observed. He also saw the righteous suffering. If you look at verse 14, all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. Now I know he isn't here saying that every one of God's children is like he is. But at the very least, he's saying this. When I look around, I see this world and the wicked people in it prospering. And I'm suffering. And that's what's causing him so much problem. And maybe, maybe you ask, though, isn't, isn't he on to something? Isn't that actually somewhat true? Again, you look around, you do see. You do see the wicked seeming to prosper. You do see them, typically, as the, the wealthy people of this world. And when you look at the life of most of God's children, it's not a life of material riches. It's not a life often of, of ease and comfort. I know in our country and in our communities, we do have it very good, don't we? Compared to the rest of this world, we have it very good. But even then, even then, most of God's children have crosses. Most of them are afflicted. And, and we should expect that, in fact, because God words, God's word rather, tells us it should be so. In fact, it must be so. Jesus said, rather, Paul said, we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus warned his disciples often of this, didn't he? He said, the servant is not greater than his master. If they have persecuted me, they will persecute you. And if you look at Hebrews 11, just for one more example, that's, Hebrews 11 is the great chapter about the heroes of faith, and it lists all these heroes of faith throughout the chapter, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then you get to the end of the chapter, and you have this summary of these heroes of faith. These are heroes of faith, and this is how they're described in verses 37 and 38. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted they were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. And yet they wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. God's children do experience trials and tribulations. So Asaph isn't necessarily wrong when he looks around and sees this. In fact, the Lord tells us we should not only expect it, but we should actually be encouraged if you're one of God's children and you experience trials because the Lord says that he scourges every son whom he receives. He chastens those whom he loves. That's Hebrews 12. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and he scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. So we should, in fact, be somewhat concerned if we never experience any trials in our life. It's not to say we should go looking for them. It's not to say we shouldn't be grateful for what we have. We should be. We have more than most of this world has. And we should be thankful for it. And we should use it to God's honor and glory. And we should enjoy it to God's honor and glory. But if you haven't ever experienced a trial and you know the Lord, then you should expect that someday trials will come. In some way, in some shape. Trials will come. 
So when you think about that then, when you read God's word, you read that this contrast does exist. So you wonder then, why, did, why was Asaph so troubled about this? When he looked around and he saw the wicked prospering and the righteous suffering, shouldn't he have thought, well, that's how God has said it is going to be? I think the conclusion you could reach then is that Asaph's trouble really wasn't just the existence of this disparity. We don't know much about Asaph, but we do know he was involved in the temple worship. So Asaph would have known God's word. He would have known that the righteous are called to suffer and that the wicked do often seem to prosper. So Asaph's trouble wasn't just the fact that this disparity, this difference, this contrast exists. Asaph's trouble was that he began to rely on his ability to make sense of it rather than God's word. As I said, he began to live by sight and not by faith. Asaph, for example, would have looked at Psalm 1, which says, blessed is the man that knows the Lord. Blessed is the man that loves the Lord. You can, and you think of those characteristics, right? It says in Psalm 1, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth fruit in his season. His leaf shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. Asaph would have seen that, and he would have looked around, and because he couldn't make sense of it, he would have said this isn't true. This was his great difficulty. He didn't believe God's word. He began to believe what he could see. And what he saw, what he perceived, was that the wicked were the blessed ones and not him. What is the answer, by the way, children, when it talks about the blessedness of the man that knows the Lord, the blessedness of the righteous in Psalm 1? What we do know is it's not a life of comfort and ease. The blessings of God's children are not financial blessings. They're not blessings of financial prosperity or ease. They're spiritual blessings. The main blessings that God's children have are not external blessings, but they're blessings that are obtained by faith and they're spiritual blessings. And that's where Asaph's problem really is. He's not living by faith. And these blessings are obtained by faith. But Asaph is living by sight. And so that's his problem, isn't it? He's living by faith, or by sight, and not by faith. And if you make that same mistake, <clears throat> if you live by sight, you, like Asaph, can expect to become depressed and angry and to doubt God's word. And you see that in Asaph's life. You see that in verse 2. He said, My feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. Or in verse 13, he says, Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. He's fallen here. He doesn't believe that God is true. He doesn't believe it. And I wonder how many of us look around and are envious at this world. When you look at what this world has to offer, especially young people, but it's, it's just as dangerous for older ones, when you look around, are you envious at what this world has? Are you discontent at what you have? Be careful when you go down that road. In fact, don't go down that road because what you're really saying is that what the world has without God is more than what I have with God. 
And think about what, that, what you're really saying. You're really saying, I'd rather have a life without God than one with him. That's a very dangerous place to be. And in fact, when you think about where this led Asaph, it's really, it's almost unbelievable. In verse 13, he says, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. What is he saying there other than my whole life in God's service has been pointless? I have cleansed my heart in innocency or cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. Everything he's done to this point, he's saying, was pointless. My faith in God, my life of serving God, it meant nothing. It was vain. It was pointless. And what is he really saying other than he no longer even believes in God? You say, is that possible to somebody that is one of God's children? Can they fall to such a depth where they don't believe in God anymore? But Asaph is saying that in verse 13. Everything he's done to this point has been pointless. Or think about uh, Thomas. What did Thomas say after Jesus had died? And he had risen again and showed himself to the disciples. And they said, he's risen. He said, I don't believe it. And I won't believe it. I will not believe unless I can see him. He wanted that life of sight. And because he couldn't see him, he wouldn't believe it. He wouldn't even believe in Christ in that moment. Wilhelmus Brockel, who many of you may have read or know of, he was a, a Dutch theologian in the 1600s. He said that the temptation toward atheism is a more common tribulation for believers than one might think. And maybe that's startling to some, but it is true that it's a more common temptation for believers than many would think. It's amazing how often God's children start to live by sight and they look around themselves and they don't see a blessing. They don't recall any of the blessings of their past life of faith. And they say, one of two things is possible. Either I'm not one of God's children or God isn't real. And Brockle, who is a, not only a theologian but a, a pastor in a very large church, found that many, many of his people struggled with this at some point. And I wonder if there are some here today who are struggling with that. Well, there's hope. There is hope in such a case as we will get to. But such a place is indeed painful, isn't it? Because if you're there, you know how painful that is. You know how awful it is to think that everything I've done up to this point has no benefit. It's all pointless. Asaph says it in verse 16. He says, when I thought to know this or understand this, it was too painful for me. What once seemed more real to him than life itself, he gave his whole life to the service of God. Now he thinks it isn't real. It was pointless. And he's saying, this is too painful for me to even think about. Paul says something along those lines too, doesn't he? He says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. And Asaph, when he was in that place, didn't dare to confess it to his friends. He says in verse 15, if I say I will speak thus, if I will tell people what I'm struggling with, behold, I should offend against the generation of God's children. And those of you who have been in such dark places know that you don't dare often to speak these things aloud. These internal doubts, maybe they don't have a full hold over your soul, but that continually bubble up about God and the reality of God's promises, the reality of God himself. You know what it's like to hold those in, I'm sure. 
you don't dare to say them because you're sure that nobody else is struggling like this. And that if I tell them, it's just gonna drag them down. Because how could one of God's children ever think thoughts like this? That's a hard thing when you face temptations like that and you don't think anybody else has. But you shouldn't keep them to yourself. Asaph found that out when he kept them to himself. It just makes it worse. We read in Hebrews 10, a warning in verse 25, against forsaking the assembling of the saints. And one reason for that is that in the body of Christ, there are those who have struggled like you have. There is no temptation that has befallen you but what is common among men. And so when you, if Satan can get you to take this temptation, these, these thoughts, whatever they might be, whatever they might be, and to bottle them up inside and to try to fight them by yourself and to not tell other, one, other ones of God's children, to not bring them to the church of God, to not unburden yourself with the other saints of God, he has you in a very dangerous place because now it's just you against Satan and you will lose. So don't be like Asaph here. And that is what Asaph is telling us when he, when he writes about this in the psalm. Don't keep them to yourselves, but bring them to one another. There hath no temptation betaken you, but such as is common to man. That's in 1 Corinthians 10. That's verse 13 in particular. And what's so hopeful then is the rest of that verse. There is no temptation that has taken you, but what is common to men. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to be able to bear it. Also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. And Asaph was provided a way of escape. Asaph was when he went to the sanctuary of God, as we see in verse 17. And that brings us, that brings us to the second point of the sermon, a gracious restoration. And we find that in verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. And what a great transition that is, isn't it? To go from verse 22 where he says, I was as a beast before thee. I was so foolish, I was so ignorant that I was as a beast. And then the very next word is nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. How? How was Asaph graciously restored? And as I said, you can look at verse 17. It says, then I went into the sanctuary of God and I understood their end. He went to the sanctuary, he went to the temple or to the tabernacle at that time. It's like us going to church, isn't it? But you then should hopefully ask, did just walking into the sanctuary solve his problems? Of course not, because you, you would know that's not true, because just walking into church doesn't solve your problems, does it? Walking into the building doesn't, doesn't do anything for you. No, we read, he also, and in verse 17, he says, then I understood their end. What was their end, by the way? Verse 18 and verse 19 and 20. Surely thou didst cast them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How they are brought down into desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. What an end that is. What an end that is. And I hardly need to warn you, do I? I hardly need to say anything more. Because what can be more horrific than that description? 
that God cast you down into a slippery place, that God cast you into destruction, how they are brought down into desolation and is in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. To live apart from God is death, and it will lead to death. As Asaph here warns you, and as God this morning warns you, a life apart from God is no life at all, but a continual death that leads to an eternal death. But wouldn't Asaph have already known this? Again, he was a Jew. He would have known these, these warnings. He would have known God's word. He would have known about the destruction that awaited God's children. So again, just going to the tabernacle didn't solve his problem. So then how, what, how did this get resolved for him? He would have sat and he would have heard the law read. And he would, this is the law he would have heard before, right? The answer really is in this word in verse 17. I went into the sanctuary of God. God promises in a special way to be present in his church when his saints gather. God promises to be there and to have communion with his people, to speak to his people. The last time I was here, I preached on John 10 uh, about the voice of that good shepherd. I spoke of that voice. God speaks. The good shepherd speaks through his word and through the preaching of his word. It's not just the voice of a man you're here to listen to. I hope that's not why you're here because then you will leave sorely disappointed. But if you're here listening for God to speak, if as you sit in your pew you pray, Lord, speak and cause me to hear, then the Lord will speak. This is where the Lord is present. This is where the Lord has promised to be. And this is where he works. He went to the sanctuary of God and then he understood their end. The Lord spoke to him. The Lord restored his faith. The dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. And they that hear shall live. It's God's word that brings faith. God speaks through it and causes you to hear, not just in your head, but in your heart, to believe it. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. To this world, the preaching of the cross is foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching, is what he calls it in 1 Corinthians. The foolishness of preaching to, sa- to save them that believe. Asaph went into the sanctuary of God, and there he met with God. Even when he was doubting God, he went. And let that be another lesson for us. Even when we're at our lowest point, and in fact, especially when we're at our coldest and our darkest And we don't want to go to church, children of God. And I know that happens. That's when we need to go. That's when we really need to go. Because there's where God speaks. Even Asaph here, he he was doubting God's very existence. And yet he went. And there God restored his faith. Nevertheless, in spite of everything in the past, he was able to confess, now I am continually with thee. He went to the sanctuary. And to be clear, it was a little different in the Old Testament times, wasn't it? They didn't have preaching like this. But what did they have in the tabernacle or later in the temple? Well, they did have the reading of the law. But what was the mainstay of temple worship? It was sacrifice, wasn't it? 
It was an animal being killed, blood being shed. And as that blood was shed, a person could literally see judgment on sin, right? The priest would put their hands on the animal uh, that was to be killed, and in that sense, they were figuratively transferring the guilt to that person, and then the animal was killed and the blood was shed. And why? Again, not because blood saved them, not because the blood of this animal anyway saved them, but it pointed to something else, didn't it? All of those sacrifices pointed to the blood of Christ, which cleanses from all sin. That solves another riddle, doesn't it? How can God, who is holy, have communion with a beast? How can he? Other than through the blood of Jesus. It's the Lamb of God is what those sacrifices pointed to. That blood of Jesus that cleanses from all sin. And that's why Asaph could say, nevertheless, in spite of the fact that I was as a beast, I am continually with thee, with God, because the blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin, even for a beast like him. Or should I say a beast like you and like me? We're no better. Nothing makes us to differ. The only reason we can stand here in the house of God this morning is because God sent his son to become sin for them who knew no sin. He who knew no sin became sin and shed his blood that we might have communion with God. That we, like Asaph, could say in spite of our sin, nevertheless, I am continually with thee. And that gets to something else Asaph realized. Not only, not only the end of the wicked as we saw in verses 17 through 20, but what is he saying in verse 23? Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. He realizes something very profound and something so wonderful that the blessedness of God's children is not just after this life ends, but it's right now because God's children have present communion with the Lord. I am continually with thee. We often think, as I said, of of God's blessing being, of being with the Lord as something that's reserved for God's children who die, don't we? When one of them dies, we say they've gone to be with the Lord. But Asaph is here, already here in the Psalms saying, nevertheless, I am continually with thee. And that's the same thing we see in, in Romans 8. We read there that the spirit of Christ dwells within us. That Christ himself dwells within us. Here, now, in the hearts of those who are as beasts, Christ dwells within us. That's why Jesus, when he was on the verge of physically leaving this earth, could say to his disciples, Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. I am with you. I am with you. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. It's an indescribable blessing to continually be with God. It defies description, doesn't it? It's far better, children of God, even in your afflictions, isn't it? Far better to have communion with God than to have anything this world has to offer. I hope you know something of that. I hope you can testify to your children, to your friends and neighbors, that even in the darkest of times, it's so much better to have God than and to be in that affliction than to be without God outside of the affliction. In fact, it's often harder, isn't it, to be thankful in prosperity than it is to be patient in adversity. 
Because in the affliction, God is there too. And he's upholding you. And if you experience communion with him, it is so much better. So much better than anything this world has to offer. If you look at verse 25, Asaph speaks of that. He says, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides thee. All that he had previously longed for was as nothing now when he thinks about communion with God. The communion that he has and can continue to experience. I am continually with thee. It's what we sang in sweet communion. Lord with thee, I constantly abide. And what we will sing at the end of the service. Still my Savior neath thy sheltering wings. My soul delights to dwell. Still closer to thy side I press. For near thee all is well. Indeed, we read not only was God continually with him, but this is another beautiful point. That God was holding him by his right hand. He was holding him by his right hand. Even when he wandered from the Lord, even when he was as a beast, doubting God's very existence, perhaps even angry with God, even then, God was holding him by his right hand. What a blessing that is, because that's the only reason, isn't it, that Asaph can say now that I am continually with thee. If God wasn't holding him by his right hand when he wandered from God, then Asaph could have been lost. But God holds us by our right hands and cares for us even when we don't care for him. That's where that image of the good shepherd is so beautiful, isn't isn't it? When he seeks that one sheep that has gone lost and he pulls him back. Even when they go wander away, every one of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord pulls us back. He holds us by our right hand so that we might be continually with him. And that's particularly amazing, isn't it, when we consider our proneness to wander from the Lord. If you know anything of your own heart, you will know that this struggle between faith and sight and the temptation to live by sight is not a one-time struggle. But it comes again and again and again and Satan tempts us with it again and again and again. And we are so prone to wander away from the Lord. We are so prone to doubt him. But even then, even then the Lord holds us by our right hand. What patience that is. What love that is. That even when we wander from the Lord, even when we doubt him, he holds us by our right hand and draws us back to himself so that we might continually be with him. We are carnal. We are sold under sin. That's what Paul says in Romans 7. But God is faithful. Indeed, God is love. That really is one of the great exhibitions of God's love, isn't it? To look at a sinful, erring child of God who has wandered from his Savior and to pull him back, to hold him by his right hand and to restore communion with God. That is truly a love of God that passes knowledge. May it lead us all to repentance. Even you, child of God, maybe especially us, children of God, when we consider our sin and how foolish we are, is that not cause to daily repent and to flee to this God who loves us so much that he holds us by our right hand even when we rebel, even when we sin against him? 
And even you who, and especially in, in another way, in another sense, you who have never believed. If you are listening today, it's only by the Lord's mercy that you have not been consumed. And why do you think you are still here? Why do you think you are hearing God's word this morning? Is not God calling you here and now to repent of your sin and to flee to this one who is so willing to save, who shed his blood for the greatest of sinners, that he might give you present communion with himself? Does that not melt your heart? If it doesn't, nothing else will. Nothing else will, other than the love of God. Maybe the fear of torment can drive you from your sin, but nothing other than the love of God will really melt a heart that is hardened in sin. But the Lord can do it. If you don't know the Lord, if you're struggling with that today, if you doubt you, knew, you ever knew the Lord, maybe you thought you once did, then look to him again and plead on these promises that he will hold his children by his right hand, that he will have communion, even with those who are as foolish and ignorant as beasts like us. He is one who is willing and able. It reminds me of Isaiah 41, where the Lord says, For I, the Lord, thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. Fear not, for there is a great God holding us by our right hand. And that leads to our final point, which will be briefer, a glorious future. Verse 24, thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. And that obviously is tied to our previous point. It's precisely because God is holding us by our right hand that Asaph knows that he will be guided by God's counsel and that he will be led to glory because God is holding him by his right hand. Verse 24 then in that sense is kind of an extension of verse 23, isn't, isn't it? I'm continually with the Lord now and I have every confidence. I indeed faith to know that I will be with the Lord forever. That I am with him now and I will be even when I die. That I am continually with him. He says, I will guide thee. I will, thou shalt guide me with thy counsel. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel. That is how God guides. That's an explanation of how does he guide us. When he holds us by our hand, how does he lead us? How does he guide us? Obviously, the, the analogy of God holding us by our right hand is, a, is just that. It's a word picture, children. He's not saying God is literally holding you by your right hand, but he is saying that God is holding you spiritually and that he will guide us. How does God guide? He says, with his counsel. And what is his counsel? With his word. I will guide thee by my word, is what God is saying. His word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, as we read in Psalm 119. God guides us with his word. Or you can think of 2 Timothy. All scripture, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. God's word has everything we need, everything we need to live and to die is right here. And we should strive, young and old alike, to fill our hearts and our minds with what's in here. Even if we don't always believe it, even if we can't say we have faith, fill your mind with what's in here. Because this is where God speaks. And when the time comes 
and you need his counsel and you need to be led, it's through this that he'll speak. It's through his word. Fill your mind with it. There are many other good books and we should read them. But fill your mind and your heart with this because this contains God's counsel. It's also in the preaching of his word. His counsel is in his word and in the preaching of his word, which really is just an extension of God's word. It's an explanation of God's word. So why preaching, in preaching it's so important that your minister always sticks close to God's word because there is the power of God's word, or the power of God, rather. Asaph found that in verse 17. He says, when he went into the sanctuary of God, there again, his faith was restored. You can think of Acts 8, when Philip was called away from this crowded city and sent to meet one man and there to preach God's word. In the preaching, God guides his people. So we should fill, again, fill our minds with God's word and never miss, as I already said, the preaching of God's word. And that flows right into the second half of verse 24. Precisely because God holds us by our right hand and guides us with his counsel, we can be sure he ultimately will receive us to glory. And what a topic that is, isn't it? The glory of God. What is the glory that Asaph is speaking of? Now, receive me to glory. Well, to receive, to receive children means to take, very simply. He's saying God will take me to glory. That's the same word that, uh, if you remember the story of Enoch, that famous man who never died, he said, it, was, it said he was sought but never found. In our Bible it says because God, because God translated him. But the word there is the same word. God took him to himself. So when he says, you will receive me to glory, he's saying you will take me to glory. What is this glory that Asaph speaks of? You'll notice he doesn't use the word heaven here, does he? He doesn't say you'll receive me to heaven. He says you will receive me to glory. And now to be clear, he is speaking about what awaits after life. Because you will guide me with your counsel and afterwards receive me to glory. The only time we won't need God's counsel anymore or God's guidance is when time ceases to exist for us and we have passed away. So he is talking about what comes next. But it's such a beautiful thing, really, that he doesn't say you'll receive me to heaven, but rather says you'll receive me to glory. And he knows a word for heaven. He knows a word for heaven. You see that actually in verse 25, whom have I in heaven but thee? But there is also really our answer, isn't it? Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides thee. Or in verse 26, my flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is my portion forever. In verse 28, it is good for me to draw near to God that's the glory that he's referring to. You will receive me to glory. What is he saying other than you will receive me to yourself? And that's uh, 
in that sense, it's a shame. It's a shame we only have a few minutes to consider the glory of God. Because what a beautiful topic that is. That could fill many more than just a sermon. The glory of God. That's something that will consume us for eternity. Won't it? The glory of God. Asaph doesn't specify further. But the rest of the Bible does make it clear, doesn't it? That the glory of God isn't some abstract quality of God. Think of Hebrews 1. The very beginning of Hebrews God hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. That's the glory of God, isn't it? His Son. He's the brightness of his glory. Or you can think of 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. God who hath commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the glory Asaph's talking about. You will guide me with your counsel and afterwards receive me to glory, to himself, to see his son. John 14, if I, and Jesus said this to his disciples, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And in Revelation 4 and 5, just to drive the point home even further, when we're given a picture of what awaits in heaven, we're given a picture of saints and of angels and an innumerable company of saints who have fallen down on their knees and cast their crowns at the feet of the Lamb. We read in Revelation 5, 6, in the midst of the throne, stood a lamb as it had been slain. And then in verses 12 and 13, we read how every creature which is in heaven above and on earth worshiped that lamb, crying out blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever. That's the glory of God. That's what Asaph had to look forward to. And if you know the Lord by faith, you not only have the blessing of present communion, But you have this that awaits you. True glory. Communion with God. Not through a glass dimly, but face to face. And then I will know, even as I am known. What glory, what greater thing could there be to look forward to? There's a poem that was written in the 1800s by a woman named Ann Cousins. And it was based on the work, the life and work of Jonathan Edwards. And uh, sadly, it's been translated to a a more contemporary tune, so I I almost hesitate to use it. But the poem itself, if you listen to the words, and the original words are beautiful. And she speaks of Emmanuel's land. That's the name of it. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. 
Not at the crown he giveth, but on the pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. There's a Psalter we sing along the same lines. <laughs> You'll have to forgive me. When I in righteousness at last thy glorious face shall see, when all the weary night is past and I awake with thee to view the glories that abide, then, then shall I be satisfied. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterwards receive me to glory. What a blessing that is. Nothing this world compares. Amen. We'll sing in closing Psalter 203. Oh, I'm sorry, we pray first. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we look unto thee. And Lord, we thank thee for this time together around thy word. Lord, we pray for the forgiveness of our sins. We pray for hearts that are filled with repentance and faith. Lord, how much we have to repent of for how much sin there was, even this morning. Lord, thou knowest all things. Lord, we pray that thou wilt forgive us, each one. That each unconverted soul, Lord, would not be able to walk away from thy word without being changed. <clears throat> that each one of thy children would find fresh supplies of faith in thy word and through thy son by the power of thy spirit. Lord, help us in this coming year to live not by sight, but by faith. Lord, help us not to be bowed down or anxious about what lies ahead or anxious at what sits around us in this dark world, but help us to live by faith. For Lord, by faith we have access to thee and to all these promises. And by faith, Lord, we can say, and by faith alone we can say, that thou shalt guide us with thy counsel and afterwards receive us to glory <clears throat> and in the meantime confess that we are continually with thee and that thou art holding us by our right hand. Lord, what glories are here. What glories are in thy word and in thy son. Lord, we pray that thou wouldst work in each one and give us faith. Protect us throughout this day. Bring us all together again at our appointed places and times to worship thy name tonight. Will thou help Dr. Grandendonk, as he is here tonight, please bless him and bless this congregation mightily. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.